Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Dead on the Delta, an African adventure. I'm author Sherry Knowlton, and today's episode is the second in a series of podcasts focused on my new book, Dead on the Delta, and its Botswana, Africa setting. Um, The format of each of these podcasts may vary slightly uh, from episode to episode. Uh, Some, like last week, uh, include a guest. Uh, others like today, I'll be flying solo. So let's get started. To celebrate the launch of my fifth novel uh, in the Alexa Williams suspense series, as I said, called Dead on the Delta, I decided to start this adventure podcast series uh, to talk about my book, yes, um, but I also wanted more broadly to focus this series on the book's Botswana settings and some of the themes that play a a role in the novel. Uh, Just a brief summary. Uh, The main character in the book, kick-ass lawyer Alexa Williams, is about to spend four months conducting lion research in the African bush with her boyfriend, Reese. She's looking forward to witnessing the elemental life and death struggle of the wild, but never imagines that she will become one of the hunted on the remote Okavanga Delta. One of the main reasons, um, I'll confess, I wrote Dead on the Delta was because I love to go on safari in Africa, and Botswana is my favorite safari destination. So today I thought I'd talk about safaris in general uh, and why I keep going back again and again. Uh, We'll cover what a typical day on safari is like. Uh, We'll answer some questions like, do you really see a lot of wild animals? Is it scary? (laughs) I won't discuss many of the mechanics of booking a safari, Uh, because uh, in a future episode, I'm going to have a travel agent guest from uh, AAA Central Penn Travel Agency to talk about that. So we'll skip that part of it, but for today, I really just want to try to convey what a safari is like uh, and why I think they're so exhilarating. Uh, If we have time, I also want to talk a little bit about the research aspect of my last safari to Botswana and Southern Africa, uh, which helped provide the background information that I needed to write Dead on the Delta. So why safaris? Well, first of all, I like to be outdoors, uh, and I've always liked to view uh, wild animals in their natural habitat. Uh, in my in our younger years, my husband Mike and I did a lot of hiking and camping throughout the United States and North America. Uh, we spent a lot of time in national parks and national forests, always on the lookout for 
elk, moose, bears, bison, wolves, and all the varied wildlife that inhabit the lower 48 and Alaska. So at a later stage in our life, when we got trips, uh, got jobs, excuse me, that allowed for longer trips, and then even later when we semi-retired and scaled back a full work day, our natural next step was to go to Africa, uh, where there's lots of wildlife. Home of the big five, uh, the lion, elephant, rhino, buffalo, and leopard. Um, This group is often regarded as the most fascinating animals in Africa. Although that designation, big five, was developed by big game hunters who were looking for trophies. So that, I think, has influenced that, that big five designation for many, many years. What Mike and I have learned from our trips is uh, that the African parks and the bush have scores of equally uh, fascinating and interesting animals. A lot of them we learn about as kids, you know, when we learn about uh, giraffes and cheetahs and gazelles in school and we read books about chimps and monkeys and gorillas. Uh, Others, uh, Mike and I came to learn about uh, in places like Kenya, Tanzania, and southern Africa as we traveled. Uh, example of a fascinating little creature are the miniature, sort of like cheetah cats, that are called servals, S-E-R-V-A-L-S. Uh, and it's just amazing how many hooved animals, ranging from kudu to sable to tiny little dick-dicks that uh, are, I don't know, as tiny as some dogs uh, that you can find out in the wild. And Africa has hundreds, maybe thousands, of bird species. Uh, Most of them are beautiful or at least interesting in their own way. So I'd say if you love wildlife, an African safari is the place for you too. Uh, Although viewing opportunities of wildlife can vary by location, every safari we've taken has provided us with extensive opportunities to see wildlife. Uh, In some areas and in some species, uh, wildlife's more elusive. Uh, A good example are, you know, rhinos are disappearing in many places in Africa. So when you see them, they may be quite wary and may not come near. Um, So we saw some rhinos uh, in Tanzania's Ngorogoro crater uh, that were, you know, far in the distance. We needed to use our binoculars. But uh, on Chief's Island in Botswana, uh, we saw some rhino very close up. So it, it really depends. Uh, predators like lions sometimes will walk right up to your safari vehicle and sprawl in the dust next to your tire. Um, In some parks, uh, you can get closer to animals than others. Uh, Some countries or parks have specific rules about whether or not you can travel off-road and, you know, follow the animals if they sort of disappear from roadside. Uh, 
Keep in mind, though, the the roads we're talking about in most of these parks are really narrow dirt paths, so you're pretty remote to begin with, uh, and you can get up to the animals in in most circumstances fairly closely, even if you're not allowed to go off-road. And what that means is uh, if you can't go off-road, sometimes the animal's best viewed through binoculars. But... Other times, even in those parks where you can't go off-road, you have to come to a halt in the middle of the road to let a herd of elephants pass or uh, a bunch of giraffes, uh, you know, sort of lope by as you're, you're in the vehicle. There are other countries and uh, different reserves that allow guests to come much closer to animals in their safari vehicles. And truthfully, that's one of the reasons I prefer Botswana. In that country, most of the animal viewing is done in what are called concessions, uh, which the government releases to private safari companies, photo safari companies, um, almost exclusively. And what that means is that these companies limit the number of visitors to a concession. Um, it's usually just the people staying in that particular outfitter's camps, which are generally small. Uh, and they often have rules about how many vehicles can be at a particular animal sighting. So if uh, somebody's uh, spots a leopard in a tree instead of 10 vehicles like you could get, for instance, on the Serengeti, um, you may only get three or four, or sometimes we've been all on our own with the animal. Uh, what that also does is uh, avoid stressing the animal out um, with the smaller number of vehicles and people watching. Although, in terms of stress, um, and, uh, you know, are they really wild animals? Well, you know, how can they let you get so close to them? Well, I, I, they are wild. <laughs> if you step outside of the vehicle, um, you're taking your chances. It can be quite dangerous. But because uh, most of these animals are born and live in protected environments, not zoos, but protected wild, wild environments like our national parks is a, a good example, a good parallel. These animals become habituated from birth to the existence of safari vehicles in their territory. Um, and they view, we're told by guides, uh, that they view the vehicle as sort of a thing, uh, not a group of people so much as a thing that, that uh, they're used to. Uh, and so if you've got a group of tourists, mostly wearing khakis and browns and tans, sitting quietly in a safari vehicle watching these creatures, it doesn't really phase them. Uh, it's no big deal because they're used to it. Of course, one of the things to keep in mind in Africa is that you don't just encounter animals while you're in the safari vehicle. Uh, you could run into them outside the front door of your tent as well. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. 
but you can control that to a certain extent by the type of accommodations that you choose on Safari. Uh, there's a really wide range of uh, budgets and types of safaris and types of, um, of lodges and tents and so forth. And you can guide your choice by uh, how much you appreciate living and staying in the outdoors, uh, how much you need comfort. Um, there are huge lodges. Um, I had mentioned the Ngorogora Crater, uh, where there are huge lodges that sit on the edge of the crater that are uh, very big hotels with four walls, plush beds, air conditioning, and indoor dining. Um, but there are lots of other places that are smaller, lodges, and then tented camps that are more rustic. Um, Mike and I actually prefer the tented camps. Um, and they also have a range from super rustic. We, we have a couple of friends who did a self-tour in South Africa where they basically had uh, pup-type tents and, and camped out set up camp every night as they move from place to place. The closest we've come to that is probably staying in what's called a mobile tented camp, um, and they move to different locations with the seasons and the migration of animals, like the wildebeest uh, that migrate on the Serengeti Plain. They're more rustic. They generally sit right on the ground, but they have beds other furniture, uh, indoor bathroom facilities. Occasionally they have outdoor enclosed showers, which are a great treat. Um, but on the opposite end of the sort of scale of tented camps, there can be very, very luxurious tented camps with generous rooms, four-poster beds, couches, slipper tubs, rain showers, and more. Uh, some of it, it all depends on what you want to pay for and what type of adventure you want to have. Most of the tented camps, whether large or small, have sort of common areas that are central tents where you dine, uh, covered dining, but probably outdoors. You have a bar there, registration. And many of the more upscale tented camps, um, the tents are all connected uh, by wooden walkways, and they're raised off the ground on raised platforms. Uh, almost always the rule is you must stay in your tent after dark, uh, and if you have to walk to and from somewhere, like back from the dining hall after dark, you must have a guide accompany you, um, because animals do wander through, uh, not only at night, but also at day. Uh, one camp in the Linyanti region of Botswana, uh, Mike and I were lounging on the bed one afternoon reading, and we uh, just watched a kudu, which is a cow-sized antelope with horns, graze on the bush right outside the screen door uh, hung over our porch. Uh, another place uh, called Mambo Camp in Botswana, um, I was brushing my teeth one morning, heard a bunch of rustling under the, the raised deck of our room, uh, and looked out the window, and there was a whole herd of African buffalo milling around down there. Uh, so you will find that if you're wild about animals, 
uh, you actually are with animals in the wild. But generally, you know, if you follow the proper precautions, listen to what the guides and the camp folks tell you, you will be quite safe. So uh, I thought maybe I would talk a little bit about the rhythm of a day on safari, uh, just to give everybody a sense of how a safari works. What do you actually do? And I'll preface this by saying that I, I do have to admit that safaris are not what you would call a relaxing vacation. You can choose not to participate in um, some or all of the activities, although I always figure that if I've gone this far uh, to come on safari, I want to participate in every chance I get uh, to go out there in the wild and see animals. But we have a good friend that we travel with, and she always takes an afternoon or two on safari just to stay at camp, lounge around the little pool if they have one, uh, read a book. So it really is up to you. But a typical safari day begins while it's still dark. You know, some of this is seasonal, but generally we've been getting, we get up in the dark on safari. Uh, different camps have slightly different routines. Uh, we've had a guide show up at our door with coffee or tea and biscuits to wake us up, um, you know, or we just make sure we set our alarm for very early and get to the dining tent uh, on time. Uh, usually you're offered something very light before you set out on a game drive, coffee, tea, a muffin, yogurt, something like that. But the guides ride you, round you up pretty quickly and get you into the vehicle for a game drive because the goal is really to get out there while the animals are still moving. In the cool hours of the morning, you know, the sun's rising, some of the predators are coming back from a nighttime hunt, um, the other animals are stirring and grazing as they greet the day, and so it's really the, the best time of day to see animals on a safari. And on a game drive, drive is exactly what you do. Uh, you sit in a safari vehicle uh, with a guide, uh, perhaps a guide and a driver, and you drive around searching for game. Uh, most of the guides have a lot of knowledge of the parks where they work, and so they know some of the favorite spots where animals can be found. Uh, uh, you know, they know where the local leopard likes to hang out or the elephant herd's daily routine of when they uh, go down to the river to drink. But really, much of the beauty of a game drive is anticipation because none of that's set in stone. You never know when you're going to come across a lion pride or a litter of hyena babies tumbling around in front of their family den. So, you know, part of the game drive is just keeping your eyes out for animals. So back to the flow of the safari. Uh, after you've been out for maybe an hour and a half, the guide finds a great, usually a scenic place to stop for tea and everybody tumbles out of the vehicle and stands around having hot dr a hot drink and a breakfast snack. 
you'll notice that one of the, the themes that I'll talk a lot about is food because you certainly don't go hungry on a safari. Then you get back in the vehicle to scout for more animals, uh, stopping whenever you encounter something interesting uh, after another hour or so as the morning uh, you know, gets warmer you head back to camp where you eat again. Most camps have a brunch upon guest return, uh, often with a, you know, a combination of breakfast and lunch to choose from. Then it's rest time. And believe me, when you're up at dawn, you bounce around in the open air for a couple of hours. Uh, oftentimes a little nap is quite welcome, um, even essential. So although you're free to do whatever you want, you can read, you can take a swim if the camp has a pool, or just sit in your porch and watch monkeys chatter in a tree nearby, um, many times people do uh, take a rest. And then in late afternoon, round three or four, it's time for more food. A uh, quick afternoon tea uh, most camps offer with hors d'oeuvres or a sweet before you head out to the vehicle and go to another game drive. Um, as the sun starts to lower and the day begins to cool, the animals come back out from their resting places uh, and they can often be spotted as you drive. As the sun starts to set, then you take an, another stop, this time for what's called sundowners, which is a cocktail or a beverage uh, of your choice and a few snacks. We've actually had some exquisite stops for sundowners. Um, some of the most memorable is like a, a tall hill in Samburu National Park toward the north of Kenya uh, where the sun sat behind, set behind this huge acacia tree, j just gorgeous. Um, we also had sundowners once on the banks of the Zambezi River uh, in Zimbabwe where the sun set over a mountain range on the other bank. Uh, and there was a place in Botswana actually on the last trip where we had the, they had set up some tables for sundowners. They had a, a couple of uh, different cars stopped there and we watched a herd of elephants take dust baths in front of the setting sun and the, the the dust motes like you know caught the light as the elephants were taking their baths so it, it was a, a really sort of poetic scene almost and then after you finish your sundowners you get back in the vehicle you return to camp uh, depending on the time of year, the park that you're in, uh, it, you can make that journey partly in the dark because the sun has set. Uh, and often you can spot animals, uh, night animals, during that drive, some predators. Or I know uh, in Wangay National Park in Zimbabwe, we could see little bush babies, the teensy little uh, monkey-like creatures with huge eyes that would catch the light uh, as they scurried around the trees, the light from the guide's um, flashlight, which he shielded with a red spotlight. Then you make it back to camp. You take a shower, maybe get a drink at the bar, uh, have dinner in the main tent. Uh, and then by that time, everybody's exhausted. 
they drift back to their tents, go to bed, and go to sleep because you start the same routine yet again the next morning uh, in the dark. Now, there's a lot of uh, variations on the pattern, and uh, one of the things that, you know, depending on where you are, what the camp is, uh, you can do full-day safaris if you're going to an interesting place far from camp. Some places have lakes or rivers or channels, so you can go on motorboats, whether big or small. Uh, in the Okavanga Delta, uh, there's a total Zen experience, which is called the Makuru, which are long, narrow um, canoes that uh, a guide stands on the back with a pole and just uh, pulls you through these reedy, shallow, calm uh, channels where uh, you're almost at water level. So that's that's a really entrancing experience. Some camps offer walking safaris. Um, those are almost always accompanied by a guide with a gun for protection from an unexpected uh, encounter with an animal. Uh, in Uganda, uh, we went to a forest one day where we spent the entire day on foot um, with champ chimpanzees uh, were in the trees all around us, and they would scamper down and scamper around us. So that was fun. Uh, also in Uganda, um, Mike went on a seven-hour trek uh, up the slopes of the windy, impenetrable forest to see a gorilla family in the wild. Uh, it was very jungly and very steep and a really hard climb. Um, I also saw a different family of gorillas um, closer to camp, but, but I'll tell that story perhaps another day. Uh, also, some camps offer night drives, uh, you know, deliberate night drives, not just, you know, seeing things on the way back to camp. Um, and there's always cultural activities in some areas, like visiting a Maasai village or a craft center. Uh, we've also visited annual animal sanctuaries, uh, too, in Kenya. I can remember where we interacted with baby elephants, uh, another one with giraffes. And also we've even taken hot air balloon rides over the Serengeti Plain. So it's not all just driving around in a car. I would say that the, the main hallmarks of every safari we've taken, however, is the schedule is jam-packed, the food is wonderful and very plentiful, uh, and I always get a sense of adventure just from being in the bush. You know, being in a remote territory surrounded by wild animals uh, is just fun for, for somebody like me who loves wildlife. And then one of the things I really like most about safaris is that when you're there, you enter a whole different world for a week or for two weeks or however long it, it takes. Um, and it, it's one that absorbs you. It totally absorbs you, um, all your energy, because it is a little bit exhausting. Um, it, you, you know, it all goes into the safari 
And it really transports you, I believe, uh, from your daily life in a way that few vacation do, really do. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the places that uh, one of the things that I really like most about safaris. You know, um, let me tell you, uh, just I was going to talk about research, um, my research trip, but I think I'm going to skip over that and maybe talk about that uh, in a future episode. Instead, what I thought I'd do is maybe uh, leave you with a little story about a wildlife sighting, uh, and we'll get back to the, the research specifics in, in a future episode. Um, like I said, sometimes it's nice just to sit in front of your tent and, uh, or in the vehicle and watch a lion pride um, for a while, or you wouldn't be doing that in your tent, but in a vehicle, uh, in your, uh, in front of your uh, porch of your tent, you may see elephants pass by, or you may see a herd of oryx uh, in the distance, uh, you know, drinking at a pool, something like that. But what I really enjoy the most are what I think of as National Geographic moments. Um, they're these little snippets of wildlife drama that play out right in front of your eyes, and I always have to pinch myself uh, to realize that I'm not w watching a, a documentary and I can't just hit pause on this. Um, the example is a, a day that uh, we were out in, I believe it was the Savuti region of Botswana, and we happened upon a leopard who had just killed, I think it was an impala, an, an antelope of some sort. Uh, the leopard was in a wide open space. It was a pretty bare space. And it was trying frantically to drag this uh, animal it had killed to a concealed place. Um, leopards typically uh, like to hide away their prey. They, they're one of the species that don't always eat something the minute they, they kill it. Um, sometimes they drag it up into trees that you couldn't believe how tall they can get these uh, dead animals up into the trees. But this one was simply trying to conceal it somewhere when a wild dog happened by. Uh, and there was a little bit of drama as the, the leopard, you know, snarled and, uh, you know, made some feints toward the wild dog uh, and eventually chased it away, defending his kill. Uh, and the minute the dog left, he picked up his pace. He really started dragging this uh, animal back into the bush when all of a sudden uh, it turns out that the first dog was just the scout, and he came back with the entire wild dog pack. And the wild dog pack outnumbered the leopard. Uh, you know, they moved in on this impala and chased the leopard. The leopard scooted up a tree. It was a bare tree, and it, like, clung to the crook of this tree that, you know, no leaves or anything. It was just, like, perched up there looking like it was going to fall off any moment. And the wild dogs, like, 
just descended on this dead animal um, and while they were start feasting on this beast, uh, the leopard sort of slunk down the tree and uh, disappeared into the bushes. Uh, he'd been chased off his kill by a pack of wild dogs. So that's the, the story for today. Um, with that, I think we're out of time. Um, I'd like to remind you that if this interests you at all, Dead on the Delta is available in print and Kindle editions uh, at most bookstores and online retailers, including Sunbury Press, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, I'd like to close with a quote, as I'm going to do in each of these episodes. This one is from Isak Dennison, better known uh, to those who watched Out of Africa as Karen Blixen. And she said, if there were one more thing I could do, it would be to go on safari once again. Thanks for joining us. Tune in next week. Uh, next week I'm going to interview, uh, getting back to the research that I was unable to, to touch on today, but I'm going to interview one of the women who helped me with my research, uh, lion researcher Robin Kotsky. Uh, Robin will be connecting with me from Botswana, from the field where she works, and she'll talk a little bit about what a lion researcher does, the wonderful conservation work of the organization she works for called Wild Crew, and more. So with that, I'll bid you farewell and say thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I hope you also tune in to the rest of the episodes. Thank you. 